What we like to do in our preaching time at Downtown Prez is go through books of the Bible, sort of keeps the preacher honest so that we don't just get on hobby horses, but we work through things that God has in His Word, whether it's hard or approachable or whatever. Uh, But because it's the new year, I wanted to just do a standalone sermon this morning and uh, maybe to recalibrate us and to set up 2019 for us as a church. So I want to invite you to look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. And I was surprised when I went back through my notes that I have not preached on this text in almost 13 years which that may not mean a hill of beans to you, but the the reason it was surprising to me is because I think about this passage a lot, and I think you'll see why that is as we go, but it's, let me just put it this way, It, it can be a very clarifying passage for the likes of us, and that's why I want to look at it as we start a new year. Let me just say one thing by way of background, and then I'll read the passage Most commentators, you know, New Testament scholars, they agree that this passage is actually out of chronological sequence in the Gospel of Luke. And and that doesn't undermine the truthfulness or reliability of Luke's Gospel, but sometimes placement is a means of emphasis. And the, the passage that's right before this in Luke chapter 10, you may not know this passage, but you've probably heard of the one right before it, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, man, it's, uh, it's a very convicting parable. You know, Jesus told that parable because he was talking about being a neighbor and loving your neighbor. And an expert in biblical law asked him, well, who is my neighbor? Sort of like, you know, can, how do you cross your T's and dot your I's where this is manageable? And Jesus' answer to the question is the parable of the Good Samaritan where a man with uh, an unexpected man, really with a natural enemy, just goes to bat for him, literally goes the extra mile for him, gives him time, gives him money, places himself in harm's way for a stranger. And Jesus says, now, who's the neighbor here? Go and do likewise. That's the passage right before this. And it seems to be that Luke, as he's organizing his material, that he puts this episode right here, as if to say, but listen, we must love our neighbor. Everything Jesus said, all the conviction there is true. But just so that we're clear that your relationship with God does not not depend on what you do or how much you love or how great a neighbor you become, you get this account. You're going to hear about two sisters. Uh, You may not have heard of of these sisters. Their brother is Lazarus. I'm going to refer to one other passage in the Gospel of John where we learn a little bit more about this family. But, But these are the sisters of Lazarus that was raised from the dead. Their names are Martha and Mary. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. 
And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we're just a few days into 2019, that you're allowing us to be together and to hear your word and say your word back to you and hear each other's voices doing so, to sing to you and hear each other's voices and harmonies, to gather around the table in a bit and to hear your word. And Father, please let us hear you. We pray that the words that are heard will not be Brian's words or just the preacher's words, just a sermon. But would you bless us so that we hear you as we worship you? And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. A little over a year ago, a woman named Katie Salisbury gave a TED Talk. And you may or may not be familiar with TED Talks. There are a gazillion of them posted online. But TED Talks have sort of spread not only all over the United States, but all over the world. These are events. There's one held in downtown Greenville in the spring annually, and uh, different presenters are brought in, and they give a talk. It's usually 18 to 20 minutes long, and it's something thinky. It's something they're researching or a trend or a new design or technology, and uh, it's just kind of a good place to hear about what's going on, what people are thinking about, what's new. Well, uh, this woman named Katie Salisbury gave a TED Talk a little over a year ago, and the name of the talk was As American as Chop Suey. Because she had been doing research and investigation into the lives of workers in Chinese restaurants, especially takeout restaurants, and especially in and around New York City. She wrote an article uh, called American Dreams in a Chinese Takeout. I want to read you just a few parts. The life of a Chinese cook is grueling and monotonous. Each day begins the same way. Workers report to their restaurant around 11 a.m., then spend the next 12 hours prepping ingredients, flash-frying orders, and maneuvering a wok at scorching temperatures until closing at 11 p.m. That leaves just enough time to go home, shower off the kitchen grease, and sleep before doing it all over again the next day. One cook sends me a link to a short documentary on YouTube entitled Floating Days. It follows a young Chinese immigrant who works at a takeout called China Chin in Syracuse, New York. In it, the dark side of the American dream emerges. Now get this description. Exhaustion, isolation, disillusionment, and a growing sense of frustration and aimlessness. She goes on to say, I frequent an employment center on Eldridge Street. I think she means in New York City hoping to meet workers who'd be interested in sharing their stories. One man responds with exasperation. What stories? He asks. Every day is the same. I wake up, go to work, come home. I wake up, go to work, come home. He has lived that reality for 24 years. 
Last part. The great irony, and, please, and tuck that word away. The great irony of working in the restaurant industry as a Chinese immigrant is that your labor plays a direct hand in preserving an iconic, much-beloved staple of U.S. culture, Chinese takeout. And yet you are almost wholly excluded from American life because of your inability to communicate. There is never enough time to learn English, and there are few resources and connections available with which to navigate mainstream society. Now, disclaimer, I I don't want to get into the muckety-muck of immigration and who's documented and policies about that. That's not my point. But my point is this. What is the irony that she's highlighting? is that whether it was someone's grandparent who came over for the American dream or their parent or the person who came over first generation from China, the irony is that he or she is not feeling and participating in and enjoying the American dream. Why? Because they are working to achieve the American dream. The irony is that they are working to achieve something so hard that they can't experience it and enjoy it. I'm going to suggest to you that that is a snapshot of what the Christian life can look like for a lot of people. That, and here's the thing, I, 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 I need to say this regularly, I especially want to say it at the beginning of a new year. I'm making no assumption, unless I know you and your background, I'm making no assumption about how much background you have with church or Bible. If you're new to this and you're just trying it on for size, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm glad that you're hearing this in particular. Th- that There are people who've been around this stuff for a while and maybe at some point they thought, man, I... I feel like, yeah, I used to love God. I used to be close to God. I used to actually enjoy God. And now there's all this stuff in my life, and I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be faithful, and I'm trying to be faithful for Him and because of Him. But the grind and the time and the energy it takes to try to be faithful and do these things for Him, I feel like I don't enjoy Him anymore. Do any of you feel that way? Try not to nod too hard, too loudly. Well, I I think this passage is for us. And you you can see the title of the sermon. The sermon title are my two points. The overwhelm and the one thing. And I'm using overwhelm like a noun. The overwhelm. And the one thing. So let's look at the overwhelm first. And I want to ask a couple of questions about it. First off, who is overwhelmed? And what is overwhelming that person? Who is the person and what is overwhelming that person? I want to start with who is overwhelmed because it's really easy to read this short passage and sort of turn these two sisters into cartoon characters. Like there's a good character and a bad character. So you've got Mary and she's just really centered you know, and she's just really in touch with her spirit, and she's chill, and she's contemplative and reflected, you know, unlike that neurotic dingbat sister of hers who is wrapped around the axle, and she's just kind of walking around the house with steel wool looking for something to scour. 
Let's think about who Martha is real quick. Uh, first off, when, when Jesus and his disciples, and by the way, his disciples are with him in this account. They're with him in this trip that he's taking. But Luke just sort of lets them fade, almost like in a play. He lets them fade out of the light, and it's just Jesus with the sisters. But the thing I want you to think about is that when, when they come into this little village, it's, it's, it's not named by Luke, it's Bethany. And it's really close to Jerusalem. When they come into this village, of all the people in Bethany, the person who welcomed Jesus into her home was Martha. She was hospitable. And a couple of other things that you learn from the Gospel of John, and I mentioned the account of when Jesus goes to their home to raise Lazarus from the dead. One of the first things John tells you in that account, before it gets into Lazarus dying and the resurrection, <clears throat> excuse me, John specifically says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. He doesn't name Mary. He says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. They were his friends. And on top of that, and this is the one that just gets me, is that as Jesus is talking with Martha, where he's come there on behalf of her brother, but Lazarus is dead. He's not sick. He's in the tomb. And Jesus is doing something that we would not recommend when she's grieving and under duress. He really questions her about what, he, what she believes. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And do you know what Martha says? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When the apostles confronted Jerusalem as a city after Christ's death and resurrection, what they confronted Jerusalem about is that they did not believe what Martha did believe. That Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I just want you to see that so that, really, I want you to like her. And and I'm not being facetious when I say, not only do I think we would like Martha, I kind of think that we would relate to her more than to Mary. Maybe not. I don't know. But she's the one who's overwhelmed. What overwhelms her? Look in verse 41. It says that Jesus identifies that you're anxious and troubled about, and here's what I want to think about, many things. Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. He doesn't identify them. But I I think we're really not going to delve into this passage the way we want to if we don't reflect on Where did the many things come from? What's the source of the the many things? And Jesus doesn't say, but I think, I don't want to read anything into the passage, but I think we can safely say it had to be from two sources, external and internal. The many things come from without, and the many things come from within. How do the many things come from without? Cultural expectations. Every culture has expectations. Uh, what were the expectations of a woman if, uh, if you came into her home? Let me tell you what they were not. And this is really interesting. To sit at the feet of a rabbi is the formal position of a disciple 
It's the formal position of a student of Torah. That was not what women did in the first century. So what Mary is doing is against cultural expectations. So, all right, that's negative. Positively, what are the cultural expectations? A woman shows her strength and her competence and her value as she does in the home. So that's where she shines, especially around a meal, especially around hospitality. And the other big one would be childbirth and parenting. That's from the outside. Uh, what about from inside? Now, again, I don't want to read into the text, but when you hear Martha come to him and say, Lord, do you not care that my sister has let... What, what do you hear? Because this is where I feel a great kinship with Martha. Is Don't we all have a mental picture of how the next fill-in-the-blank should be? The next hour or the next weekend, or the next Christmas, or the next vacation, or whatever, that I have this mental picture of how it should be, and things are right if they conform to my mental picture, and they're messed up if they don't conform to my mental picture. And to her credit, I think Martha had a mental picture that I'm on top of it, and everything is fixed that should be fixed, and we put a wonderful meal in front of our guests, And we have a great joyful time together. She had a mental picture and it's not happening because one of the workers is sitting at Jesus' feet and it frustrates her. Now, I told you to hang on to the word irony. Pull it back out. The irony. But let me just ask the question. Why isn't Martha enjoying Jesus? The irony is that Martha is not enjoying Jesus because she is working so hard for Jesus. Let me say that again. The irony is that Martha is not enjoying Jesus because she is working so hard for Jesus. Oh, that this had some relevance for us. I'm sorry. This is just kind of a disconnected sermon this morning that has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. And it's not safe for preachers to use what-if scenarios, but, you know, as you you and I are scrambling to stay on top of everything, every text, every feed, every cool new podcast that someone told us about, what if in the midst of us scrolling and listening and driving and checking and, and scanning, what if Jesus walked up to us and said, why are you doing that? What if we said, well, I, I, I feel like I need to be culturally aware and be on top of these things so that I can be a, 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 an astute servant of you. What if he said, did I ask you to stay on top of everything? Martha, did I ask you to make everything that you're making? I mean, I, we might be surprised how many people are in the room right now that truly feel like I'm not... My grind is not bad things. It's like, okay, why, do, I, do I run cocaine today or assassinate somebody? I need to swing by Walgreens. <laughs> That's not our to-do list. It's like good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing, conscientious thing, conscientious thing, conscientious thing. 
to the point where I can hardly remember when I just sat and enjoyed Jesus. So I think we relate to overwhelm. So what's the one thing? And really, I want you to look at two things Jesus does. The first thing is that Jesus, he sees her. And based on the little I know about Jewish culture in the first century, I don't think there were a lot of men that really saw a woman. Did you notice that he doesn't talk about her activity? He doesn't say, Martha, just chill. You made five entrees. One is sufficient. Fix it. And so we can all group together and eat and and talk. He doesn't talk about what she does at all. He sees her. Um, Have you ever had a song that maybe you've been around for years, maybe you've been around it for decades, and then you finally hear the lyrics? That happened to me recently with the Jackson Brown song, uh, Running on Empty. The, the first line of the song is, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tour song, and the, the, the version you hear on the radio is, is a live recording. The song starts with him saying, uh, looking out at the road rushing under my wheels. And it's such a cool image of, for someone who tours, the passage of time and the passage of life. is like, It's like the road surface going under my, my tour bus. So he starts the song that way, and then past the halfway mark, he comes back and says, Looking out at the road rushing under my wheels, I don't know how to tell you all just how crazy this life feels. I look, this made me emotional, at the 830 service too. Uh, I cry when I talk about Jackson Brown, not Jesus. Probably not a good sign (laughs) for our church. But let me start again. Uh, Looking out at the road rushing under my wheels, I don't know how to tell you all just how crazy this life feels. I look around for the friends I used to turn to to pull me through, looking, looking into their eyes, I see that they're running too. You know, when you're tired and you're ground down, you want people to see, see me, I'm tired and I'm ground down, but they can't see you because they're tired. And they're in the grind. But Jesus Christ can see you. Jesus Christ can see you. And he sees her. And this is amazing. He doesn't talk about her activity. First off, he says, Martha. Martha. And that's affection. When you hear a double name like that. Later in Luke's gospel, when Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's lover's language. Martha. Martha. And then he says this. You are anxious. He doesn't talk about her behavior. He says what she is. You are anxious and troubled. See, that's the thing. We want Jesus to come and just tell me what to do. And the audacity of Jesus is that he will talk about who we are and about the heart. Like, think about this. This is something I just, uh, it strikes me a little bit more every year. Think about what we say every summer. And it happens this way every summer. 
June, you know, uh, school spills over a little bit into June, and then after that, people just scatter to the four corners. We're scattered by the four winds of the earth. And then we sort of come back together, but then we do stuff for July 4th, and then we come back, but then it's like, oh, if we're going to get some time away, August is crazy, so we've got to do something before August. So we do something again, whatever that is, and then August, we kind of regroup, and we all compare notes, and we all say the same thing. Y'all, summer was crazy. And we make that psychotic face of, y'all, summer was crazy. And we speak for all the world like there was this force of craziness that came upon me and entered our lives, and that's where the craziness came from. And I'm going to paraphrase Jesus, if I may. You know, there's a place where Jesus, some people got on to his disciples because they didn't do the ceremonial washing of their hands before they ate, and, and, and they thought that made the disciples unclean. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but from within, out of men's hearts, comes says, evil thoughts and sexual immorality and murder and all these things. All those come from within and make a man unclean. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase Jesus. It is not what goes into a summer that makes it crazy. For from within, out of our hearts, comes overcommitment and the fear of missing out and insecurity about stillness and addiction to activity and people-pleasing. All these come from within and make a summer crazy. Jesus looks at the heart. Martha, you're anxious and troubled. So he sees her, and then he clarifies. He doesn't scold. He clarifies. Look in verse 42. Well, let me start back in 41. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Listen to the contrast. Many things. But one thing is necessary. And friends, when God becomes man and he sits in your midst and says, you know, really, there's just one main thing. Wouldn't you say it would be wise to pay that a lot of attention? Especially at the beginning of a new year. One thing is necessary. And get this. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, what does that mean, the good portion? And this is really great. That's Old Testament language. When, uh, when the Israelites had been enslaved, terrible lives in Egypt, and they come through the wilderness, a whole generation dies, and the children come into the promised land. The promise was, when you cross that Jordan River, and when you conquer those other peoples, and drive them out, that you'll get your portion. And that meant you'll, you'll get your land, your vineyards, your wells of water. You'll have your crops. You'll, you'll have your place. You'll, you'll put down your roots. So Judah, tribe of Judah, that'll be your portion, that part. And, uh, and tribe of Dan, that'll be your part. And those will be your portion. But God more than once says this, but the tribe of Levi... The priests, 
They don't get a portion. And God says, because I am their portion. They handle the holy things of God. I am their portion. And, and this is amazing. The psalmists take that and kind of run with it. Like David. Did you hear in the, in the, the psalm reading earlier? David was not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He says, God, you're my portion. And my cup. What is he saying? God, you're my roots. You're my place. You're my wealth. You're my feasting. You're my identity. You're my place. And other psalmists say the same thing. Lord, you are my portion. When Jesus says to Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion. He is claiming to be God. He is saying that she is doing what she was made to do. And if you will listen to me, if you will stop doing for me and listen to me, you will find that I am to be your wealth. And I am to be your roots. I am to be your family and identity. I am to be your story. If you'll listen to me. And it won't be taken away from her. So I want to say a couple of things. First off, in 2019, you and I will have to say no to a lot of good things so that we can have what is great. And some of you may know the business book by Jim Collins, Good to Great. The first sentence of the main part of the book is, The enemy of great is good. If you just want to have a good company, you can have a good company. It'll never be a great company. It's really, that's instructive. You and I, you know, again, it's not like we're having to sit, you know, every day and go, Do I rob the bank? Do I kill those three people? It's good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing, good option, good thing, good opportunity for the children, good thing I could do over here, good thing I could volunteer for. You and I will have to say no repeatedly to good things, to measurable things, to postable things, to have what is great. You know, it, I know I'm not speaking for the whole room, but some of you went to really good schools. Some of you even went to really good grad schools. Now, whether you went to a great school or no school or Mississippi State or whatever, <laughs> hypothetically. A lot of you got to do what you got to do because you did that track that was asked of you of check these boxes and jump through these hoops and fill in these forms and hit those numbers and hit those grades and hit those marks. And kudos for what you've accomplished, but it may be that you, your way of doing life is so active and busy and not still that you don't even know it. So I'm going to say it again. This year you and I will have to repeatedly say no to good things in order to have what's great. 
I, I don't want to sit here and spell out what that means for you, but could I just ask you to think about one part of your life? What about how your day begins? Does your day begin with you frenetically demonstrating that I'm responsive to text and I'm responsive to calls and I'm on top of my emails and I'm going to keep inbox zero and I'm going to be on top of every podcast and all my feeds? Is that how your day begins or can your day begin in stillness? If the stillness is three minutes for you to remember that God is God and we are not. And that Jesus can be your portion. But the last thing is this. Um, you may be in a season right now. Some of you are in a season right now where God, and I'm not saying this irreverently, but he's sort of throwing the kitchen sink at you. And you're in a season where it is very hard and maybe I'm taking care of someone who's very sick or I've waded into a very difficult situation or I'm... Uh, I'm sick myself, where I'm not feeling all this rest. And honestly, what I feel is that Jesus doesn't care. Remember how Martha started her question? Lord, do you not care that she won't help me? Here's the note I want to end on. How does this little passage begin? What are the first words? Verse 38, Now as they went on their way, where are they going? And in Luke's gospel, after the end of chapter 9, there is one place that Jesus and his disciples are going. They are going to Jerusalem. They are going there for Jesus to die. Do you feel convicted this morning? Please, 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 don't come up to me afterward and go, Ugh, I feel horrible after that sermon. Can we have a different bucket besides horrible? How about conviction from God's Spirit? If He's convicted you and you feel like, Ugh, I, I, I'm running around crazy all the time. I'm, I'm telling myself or I'm telling my friends or I'm telling a child, like, hey, we can't be saved by our works. We're not saved by what we do. And then I'm working and I'm doing all the time. If you trust in Christ, He took care of that. You're clean. He paid for your anxiety. He paid for us loving activity more than we love Him. And He broke the power of sin. He broke the power of sin so that people who believe in Jesus can actually change. You don't have to be defined by what you do. And messed up normal people in 2019 can actually experience that Jesus is your portion. And it won't ever be taken away from you. So let's pray that that would be the case. Let's pray. Father, this passage creates tensions for us. There's so much to do we need to do for people that we work for or work with or employees that count on us. And we need to do the activities that make up a city and a culture. We have family members that we need to love and care for, maybe that we have to provide for. There's a lot for us to do. We need to love neighbors and be like the Good Samaritan. But, Father, we're praying 
that by your Spirit you will not let us try to define ourselves or find our portion by our activity. Lord Jesus, would you enable us and remind us to sit at your feet as your disciples and to derive our life from you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.